This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 9, um, and it's verses 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messages ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, thank you very much, Esther, for reading. Please do keep that passage open in front of you. And for those of you who are looking into churches and you want to know what kind of church we are, um, well, we're a church that believes in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is the Holy Spirit's inspired word. So we take it seriously, the sword of the Spirit. And one of the ways to take it seriously is to keep it open and check what I'm saying is actually what the Spirit says in this passage as we look at um, what he's um, inspired Luke to say. So let me pray for help as we turn to God's Word. And please keep page 868 open. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray very much, as you commanded us a couple of weeks ago in Luke to do, to listen to Jesus now. We thank you for these words breathed out by your spirit and we pray that he would be at work in our hearts now to understand and to accept and so to be changed by Jesus' words here. For your glory we pray. Amen. Well, what did you make of the reading? Some shocking bits in there, aren't there? And whether you're a Christian or not, actually, I think there are some really shocking bits in that reading. Um, things that kind of catch us by surprise, startle us a bit. Um, and I want to say just up front, kind of what do you make of Jesus' recruitment technique? And there's an outline, by the way, on the back of the service sheet if you're new and haven't found it yet. Uh, but my, my kind of thing I want us thinking right at the start is what do we make of Jesus' recruitment technique? Because um, in the back half of the passage, verses 57 to 62, um, you kind of get people wanting to follow Jesus or talking about following Jesus and it's almost like he's trying to put them off. Do you notice that? This week, the, the um, Christian unions in the various universities have been, have been trying to reach out to freshers. It's been Freshers' Week in some of them. And they've been trying to reach out with the good news of Jesus, trying to encourage folk that of all the things you could do at university, the most important one, the most amazing one, the, the, the kind of best possible relationship you could have with all the people you'll meet is to find the Lord Jesus and follow him. That's the best relationship you could invest in at a university, getting to know Jesus Christ and becoming a follower of him, or keeping going as a follower of him. So they were kind of getting that message out on campus, and, and just imagine if they'd had Jesus himself on the kind of freshest stand, or speaking at the Cayley. If he was saying this kind of stuff, so a fresher comes up and says, well, I'm really interested in being a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of up for following you, Jesus, wherever you go. And Jesus says... Verse 58, well, I'm homeless. I've got no home. 
I'm less well-off and less secure than an animal or a bird. Are you sure you want to follow me? Uh, <laughs> Another person says, well, they're interested, but they, they'll be right back because they need to say goodbye to their parents and their family. And Jesus says, verse 62, well, that kind of attitude is not fit for my kingdom. I mean, what kind of recruitment technique is that? It's shocking, isn't it? I actually felt that as, as we read it, just startling how blunt he is, seemingly off-putting, you might think. But the reality is, Jesus here is just speaking straight with us. He's just giving us the honest truth of what it's going to mean to follow him. Unlike the kind of religious salesmen and charlatans of this world who say, kind of, come to me if you're for a happy, easy, healthy life. Now, Jesus says it straight. There's no small print to discover later because he says it up front in big print. It's not going to be an easy, healthy, trouble-free life following me. It's not some shortcut to riches or fame or popularity. Quite the opposite, actually. It's going to be costly following Jesus. I wonder if any of you have already felt that if you've turned up this week and already know Jesus, already follow him and realize that it's going to be costly in this phase of life to stick close to him. Certainly those of us uh, for whom university is a long time ago know that sticking closely to Jesus, publicly with Jesus, is costly. Now, it's a great time to be here if, um, if you've just moved into Edinburgh or starting a new phase of life. And that's not just students. I'm aware there's, there's families arriving, there's folks coming into Edinburgh to begin retirement. It's a great moment to be here because Jesus just says it straight and says, follow me and here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it involves. Now, my main kind of aim and prayer this morning is to understand why it's costly following Jesus and why it's still worth it. Does that make sense? It's obvious he thinks it's costly, but why? Why is it costly following Jesus if he's so great? And then why is it worth it? That's our kind of aim. And if if we're going to get there, basically you you need to stay with me in verses 51 to 56. Okay, this is a passage in two halves. We've got the second half all about following Jesus, but the first half is crucial. It's a bit harder work, so that's why I'm telling you up front, please stay with me. Um, But if we can get our heads around what Jesus is doing in the first half, 51 to 56, then it will will make much more sense when he tells us it's costly to follow him. So let's start off then. Um, Point one of two, Jesus is the cross-bound king, verses 51 to 56. Jesus is the cross-bound king. If we're going to willingly, voluntarily choose to follow Jesus down the road, we need to know where the road's going. And Jesus says, the cross-bound king, that's who I am. I'm getting that from verse 51. So let me just read verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a key moment in Luke's gospel. It's actually a key moment in Jesus' life. Uh, It's not an exaggeration to say it's kind of the turning point of his life. He's obviously not going to Jerusalem for sightseeing. If you've been kind of reading through Luke, that's obvious. He's already told us, as, as Robin read the verses earlier, that he's going to Jerusalem to be rejected, to be killed. He's heading to the cross at Jerusalem. Um, Or to put it another way, Jesus knows Easter is coming before anyone else does. For much of this gospel, Jesus has been announced as the kind of saviour of the world. Think all the the Christmas carols and the angels singing and the the manger and everything. It was all saying, he's the saviour of the world. This is God's promised saviour. 
Uh, and, and Peter and the disciples have just realized what a big deal it is that Jesus can do miracles and can teach like no one else. This is God's savior king. He's the savior king. He's the king of the world who will save the world, or at least offer salvation to the world. But since that big moment, that's 9 chapter 20, if you want to look back at it sometime, 9 verse 20, Jesus said, uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the king, the promised savior. Since that moment, Jesus has been explaining what it's going to take to save people. And what it's going to take is his death. He's going to be rejected, suffer and die at Jerusalem. Jesus is the cross-bound king. And did you notice verse 51 here? He's absolutely determined about it. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is, he's walking directly. He's taking a bearing direct to the cross. In fact, that phrase, setting his face, is lifted from Isaiah. So in Isaiah, amazing book of the Bible, a prophet, um, speaking of the, the Savior to come, Isaiah, in chapters 50 to 53, talks about a righteous servant of God who sets his face like a flint to accept suffering and rejection even though he doesn't deserve it. The heartbeat of it is Isaiah 53, that he... He faces a death that he does not deserve to save others who do deserve it. And Jesus, knowing all of that, sets his face exactly in that direction. He's headed to Jerusalem to save people, to accomplish a great new rescue. Jesus is the cross-bound king. It's hard to overemphasize what a big deal this is. Like, it's a big deal in Luke. This, will, this, this sets the direction for all of Luke chapters 9 to 19. And all of our small group stuff is going to be going through that until Easter. So that's a big deal. But actually, it's not just our church program that gets set by this. It's, it's the history of the universe gets set by this. It's not an exaggeration. Say, if Jesus hadn't made the decision he did in verse 51, none of us would be sitting here. And there'd be no forgiveness on offer with a holy God. All because he chose to walk in that direction. Okay, that's verse 51. But actually, Jesus' mission is not just limited to achieving salvation on the cross, but also proclaiming it, offering it far and wide. Again, those of us who have been around have heard that. Chapter 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he says it again, uh, just after walking away from some opportunities to heal, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, because I was sent for this purpose. See the point? Jesus doesn't just come to achieve salvation on the cross. He wants to proclaim it. He wants to get the message out far and wide. That's why those Christian unions are having events where they can share the good news. And here, in verse 52, he sends off some messengers. We've seen that a few times. We're going to see it next week as well. He's sending messages off. They go off into Samaritan country, kind of northern Israel. Um, And what does he find? Well, more rejection. Verse 53, the people did not receive Jesus because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, there are some cultural, historical reasons that we won't go into for why they weren't keen to accept Jesus. They thought God should be worshipped on a different mountain, not in Jerusalem. So you can kind of see why they might be anti um, what he's doing. But I think Luke puts this here to kind of set the tone for Jesus's journey, as in this is going to be a journey where Jesus gets rejected again and again and again. He said it himself, when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. 
So he's kind of, Luke is reminding us, this is the basic shape of Jesus' mission. He's going to die for people. He's going to proclaim that message to far and wide, and he's going to get rejected. That is the shape of the cross-bound king. Now, once we realize that he's going to get rejected, I think we start to understand what's going through James and John's head in verse 54. Did you notice verse 54? It's, it's pretty strange, um, uh, especially on the first week at church. His disciples, James and John, saw this, and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, first sight, that might sound like a bit of a crazy question. <laughs> like, where did that idea come from? But actually, in the Bible, this is not without precedent. So, in 2 Kings chapter 1, the great and powerful prophet Elijah was rejected in this same area, in the Samaritan area, northern Israel. He was rejected. And people realized that when they rejected Elijah, they were in big trouble. You don't mess with God's prophet. So in 2 Kings 1, the the king of Israel thinks he can send an army battalion to try and kidnap uh, Elijah and, and reject his message. And Elijah says these words, just listen. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And then 2 Kings records that the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed them. And then another army unit was sent. The same conversation, the same result. So actually, James and John, their request is not without precedent, strikingly in the Bible. It is a really serious thing, ignoring one of God's chosen prophets, rejecting him. And if it was serious with Elijah in this area of Israel, well, how much more now they're rejecting Jesus Christ, the king, God's chosen king. Do you see the logic? Are you still with me? Try and get back on board if you're not. They're thinking, Jesus you can't stand for this. These Samaritans shouldn't treat you like this. They're blaspheming you. They're they're rejecting you. They need to be held accountable. Who do they think they are, given who we know you are, the Christ? They've just seen on the mountain of transfiguration, they've seen that Jesus has the glory and power to, to judge the world. He's not to be messed with. So is he going to do something about it? I wonder if you've ever felt even just a hint of that, that feeling of, Lord Jesus, how long are you going to put up with this? How long are you going to put up with extremist groups in the Middle East hunting down Christians and their children house by house? Just going to do nothing? How long are you going to put up with um, state-sponsored burning of Bibles, bursting into church gatherings, banning public gatherings of God's people? or even closer to home, just around here, how long are you going to put up with Jeremy Clarkson calling you little baby Jesus every time he's cracking a joke? Or how long will you enjoy, endure the, the pride of celebrity atheists selling books as they attack you, laughing that if there really was a God, he'd strike me down by lightning? James and John know who's standing next to them the glorious son of man, God's judge of the whole world. They've seen his glory on the mountain. They know there's nothing more serious than rejecting Jesus. And so they're asking, why don't you do something about it? Shall we call down fire from heaven? It happened with Elijah, and you are a bigger deal than Elijah. Let's look at Jesus' response, verse 55. 
Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So Jesus rebukes them. Why, do you think? Well, not because Jesus is gentle and mild and does not believe in judgment. Just come back next week if you want to see that. If you look on to chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, Jesus is going to warn some of the towns around him that they're in serious danger by rejecting him. It's not that Jesus doesn't believe in judgment. In fact, he is sure that judgment is going to come. People will be held accountable for everything they do and say in this world. Jesus knows it's serious. But the point is, it's not coming now. Jesus' mission right now is not to bring judgment on the world, to enact judgment. He's not come in glorious power and authority to render justice to every person. Because do you remember what he has come to do, verse 51? Where's he headed? The cross. He is the cross-bound Christ. He's here as the suffering servant, the king who will lay down his life for people to achieve salvation and to offer salvation far and wide. So then, if you're still with me, here's the simple conclusion of point one. Now is the time to proclaim salvation before judgment comes. That's consistently taught across the New Testament that the God of the Bible is holding back the day of judgment so that salvation can be offered far and wide. Before we meet our maker, he wants us to hear about Jesus and the forgiveness he offers. Now, all of that brings us to the second half of the passage and what it's going to mean to follow a king like this. Already, I hope we can start to see why it would be costly to stay close to a king who's headed in this direction. See, Jesus is not here to kind of vindicate himself, to prove he is who he says he is. No, he is here to lay down his life to save people. That is to say, he's determined to go to the cross. It's more important than his own reputation. It's more important than his social comfort. It's more important than his material ease. It's more important than anything else. He is determined to go to the cross, to see people saved, to offer that salvation wide. And so, of course, if we walk with him on the road, if we join in his footsteps... Well, we're going to experience some of that same cost. Look at verse 57, the way it starts. As they were going along the road, this is all about, are we going to join Jesus in this path? We know that the road is not a steady trajectory of ever-increasing standards of living and popularity and happiness and comfort and acceptance. Now, Jesus is becoming downwardly mobile for the sake of others. And it's his choice, his willing choice. Extraordinary, actually, that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Jesus is the best person you could ever get to know. Because he willingly laid down his life to save people like you and me. But what about us? Well, let's, let's meet these three individuals between verses um, 58 to, um, uh, 57 sorry, to 62. Three individuals, three examples of what it's going to look like to follow Jesus. If I had one word to summarize them, costly is the word. It's going to be costly following Jesus on this road. Um, he's, yeah, it'll mean prioritizing Jesus over other things in life. But each person gives us a different angle. So let's dive in with the first guy. 
57, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. This guy actually sounds pretty enthusiastic. Um, He's taking the initiative. I'm I'm with you, Jesus. Sign me up. I'm all in. Actually, before Jesus signs him up, he wants us to realize how challenging Jesus' life is and therefore how challenging it will be to follow him. It is material cost, I think, here. Property, wealth, security. Jesus is saying, look, do you realize I didn't stay in my nice home in heaven? in all the glory of the Father and the security of the heavenly throne room. Now, I chose to be born in a manger, a homeless baby. I chose to grow up with a poor family, not in a palace. And then I hit the road as an itinerant preacher, saying stuff that made me unpopular. And now, right now, I'm heading to a cruel and unjust death in Jerusalem. Do you realize the direction I'm heading? I'm downwardly mobile for the salvation of others. And of course, I think in, in leafy Morningside, in lovely Edinburgh, well, I think this is quite challenging, isn't it? This whole area of kind of how we use material resources, our attitude to material resources, wealth, property, security in this world. It's really countercultural. I said this a bit last week, that, that lots of us have been drilled by our, our kind of schools or, or families or background to, to think we should be going up and up and up and up in life. As a country, as a city, we're obsessed about the property market. It's all over the headlines, how much the prices are rising, how first-time buyers could get on the ladder, how to upsize, how to get a garden, how to get the right catchment for schools, how to get a second place to go on holiday to. Property, 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 property. As a young Christian, it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong if you're living in rented accommodation. But the Lord Jesus' priority is just so different. His life is not about... How can I get the best possible home and financial security? No, he sets his face to Jerusalem. Because in light of coming judgment day, he cares more about seeing other people saved than he does about seeing himself comfortably housed. And don't get me wrong, this is not saying that Christians should never own a home. There are lots of examples in the New Testament and even in Luke, actually, of believers who do own homes and use them brilliantly for the gospel. And of course, Jesus is not teaching that homelessness is the kind of the the best way to live, like we should aspire to it. But he is teaching loud and clear that his priority is not wealth or housing or security. Rather, he'd be willing to lay those aside or to put them behind the big priority of offering salvation to many. And sometimes as Christians, we do face that kind of decision. So so after being in Edinburgh for a while, where are you going to live next? Well, sometimes there's a straight choice between a really nice house, somewhere where there's no church, or a really good church you could be involved in and serve in, where the housing is going to be not as much for your money. Christians find it hard to make that choice. What about moving to an area that actually is really needy for the gospel, where there's an outreach work going on? And one of our our mission partners here at Chalmers, um, a guy called Andy Robertson, is leading a church plant in Charleston in Dundee, a scheme, one of the places with the highest drug death in Europe. And it makes a massive difference when someone, a couple, a family, move into the area to join the team. Or would that be our red line and say, well, I'm willing to follow Jesus, but not when it starts to compromise my housing situation? Or those of us who are staying around in Chalmers, will we kind of um, be willing to to, to kind of put put our, like Jesus, kind of 
put our wealth and resources and, and give to the work of, of saving people. You can ask us more about that um, uh, afterwards if you'd like to. The question is, are we willing to follow our king, the cross-bound king, in this area of material wealth? That's the first challenge. And I have to say, if you're reeling already for that one, there's two more to come, I'm afraid. This is, this is quite a, a kind of um, a stark set of warnings from Jesus or, or challenges. Second challenge, um, even more blunt, I think, verse 59, to another one, this time Jesus takes the initiative, to another person he says, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, through the journey narrative all the way up to Jerusalem, we're going to hear lots of excuses as we go through of people who've just got something else before they can follow Jesus. I would follow you, but I've got something else to do. I've got another priority to tick off. Then I'll be there. I'll be with you eventually. But actually, of all the excuses we're going to hear, this one surely sounds quite legitimate, doesn't it? I mean, honouring parents is a really good thing in the Bible. Uh, it's in the Ten Commandments. Jesus teaches it and, and, and um, uh, challenges people who don't care for their parents. And surely uh, ensuring a, a proper burial was a key social norm. Like, it's an obligation in that society. So how can Jesus be so blunt as to say, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God? Well, I think the point is, the priority of following Jesus and proclaiming Jesus is so urgent and important. It's such a high call on any human life that it's literally more important than the best excuse. Those of you who are new to university, I wonder what you're hoping to do at university. I wonder if there's something that, that could actually squeeze Jesus out to the fringes. Or even something as important as burying your own father Jesus says there's something more important, following me, proclaiming me. It's more important than any social norm or family obligation. Now, just to say, with this particular example, we don't actually know whether this guy's father is dead already, as in it's kind of a need to arrange a funeral in the next few days, or I think more likely he's just coming to the end of his life and this guy's saying, well, let me just get through that phase of life and then I'll, then I'll come, and, um, come and follow you. And you definitely hear that attitude often. Someone says, well, I'll look seriously into Jesus once I'm retired, but right now things are crazy busy with work. Or, well, we got young kids, so I can't possibly think about that, but, but I am interested eventually. Just keep it on the back burner. Or maybe once I'm through university and I've made my friends and I've got a decent degree and I've got into a graduate job, then I'll look seriously into Jesus. Or possibly in my second year, I'll just get through Freshers Week and you know, make some relationships. Jesus' answer to people who say, give me a decade and then I'm all yours, or give me a year and then I'm all yours, or even give me a few months and then I'll be with you, Jesus' answer is pretty blunt. There's more urgency following him than even the most pressing and legitimate of social norms. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, he says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What's he actually saying with that? Like, what, what does that phrase actually mean? I think he's saying, leave the spiritually dead to bury their own physically dead, but as for you, here's something more important, the message of forgiveness. So what's he saying? Well, yes, arranging a funeral is important. And of course it's important. Of course we should, we should care for our families practically. The rest of the New Testament is clear on that. 
that actually sharing the forgiveness news is more important, including for our families. There's a number of people in Chalmers who are caring for elderly relatives and proclaiming the kingdom as they do, speaking of the only name by which we can be saved, forgiveness for eternity. Okay, that's number two. Time to get to number three. Um, now, the third person, at first thought, it sounds like it might just be the same thing again, because again, it's a kind of family obligation. Uh, verse um, 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Um, so at first, it just seems like it's a kind of being pulled between a family concern and, and following Jesus. Um, but actually, I, I think from Jesus' answer that the issue here is about a kind of single-mindedness once you begin as a Christian. That is, looking forwards as a Christian, not looking backwards and kind of hankering after an old life. Let me just show you that. So um, the guy says, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those of my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, What's this picture of the plow? Well, imagine you're driving a tractor across a field to plow it in a nice straight line. That's the modern version. Um, you can't drive straight if you're looking behind you. See that? If you're looking over and the plow starts to, to weave all over the, the field. Jesus here is saying, look, um, again, he's assuming that following him will involve working for him, plowing, um, like the proclaiming that we've just had in the last guy. But he's saying, look, if you're going to proclaim me, you've got to keep looking forwards, not hankering back to the life before you were a Christian. That kind of warning actually has a long pedigree in the Bible, kind of don't look back. So Genesis 19, Lot's wife famously looked back to the world she'd been rescued out of with disastrous consequences. Or in uh, the people of Israel, when they're in the wilderness, they've been rescued from Egypt and they looked back with rose-tinted spectacles, even though they'd been in slavery, but they looked back and said, oh, the melons, the cucumbers, oh, if only we could be back there. And it's a real and present danger for us. Striking this, it's one thing in the Christian life to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, even if it costs. It's one thing to make some big life decisions that are costly. It might be breaking up a relationship that's just not healthy or helpful or wise for following Jesus might be choosing to live somewhere or work somewhere to maximize the chances to, to share the good news of Jesus. It might be arranging our finances so that we can give to, the, to gospel work. It might be going overseas like some of our mission partners to share the good news of Jesus. There's lots of different ways we can make costly decisions following Jesus, joining in with his work. But it's one thing making the initial decision. It's a whole other thing not looking back. That is not taking a glance in the rearview mirror to see what we're missing out on. To consider what life would have been like if we'd not made the costly decision for Jesus. If we'd not um, prioritized him, spoken up about him, given that money away, or, or um, whatever it is. Perhaps we might be nursed, nurt, we could easily be nurturing a bitterness that Jesus asked costly things of us, which we never really wanted to do, but we did them. And now we're pining for the thing that's been lost. Again, Jesus is honest. He's straight talking. He says, no looking back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's saying, look, if you're coming with me, you are going to need a single-mindedness. 
Now, he's not asking us to do anything that he's not doing. Remember verse 51? He set his face to Jerusalem. He's determined, determined to see people saved, determined to put his own agenda below that, his own comfort below that. And he says, that's the way it's got to be following me. Our time is up. Let me just close asking this. Would we be fools to follow Jesus on this road? He actually says it's the only way to follow him. Uh, There's no such thing as a kind of Christian who doesn't join Jesus in this direction. But would we be fools if we start to take this approach to every area of life? Jesus first, his kingdom first, and then everything else in life is arranged around him. Would that be a waste of university years or graduate years or... Our, our retirement years. There's no doubt it would be a radical thing to do, wouldn't it? It's not the radical kind of religious extremism that attacks people. Remember Jesus saying to James and John, no, now is the time to offer salvation. But it is radical. Being downwardly mobile for the salvation of others. Just like Jesus, putting our own comfort and our own selves behind the eternal salvation of others, other people hearing about him. But that is just what Jesus said, chapter 9, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's not being a fool to give up stuff we can't keep in this world, to gain what can't be lost, seeing people safe for eternity in Christ. Jesus wasn't a fool for his downward mobility for the sake of others. And he did it voluntarily, willingly. And he calls us to follow him on that path. And wonderfully, the encouraging thing, and I can say this honestly, The encouraging thing in this church family, having been around for four years now, is that I've seen all sorts of examples of this this kind of direction of life. Making costly choices to see the gospel go out. Making costly choices to stick close with Jesus. But it's not easy, is it? And it's always tempting to look back. And so as we go on through this journey narrative, all the way from Luke 9 to 19, Jesus is going to be helping us Not just do this, but do it with joy. See, for the joy set before him, he walked towards the cross. Let me pray that he'd give us strength to follow in his steps today. Our Father in heaven, you know our hearts. You know, those of us in the room who need to be encouraged that this is the path we're on and it's the best way to live. You know the hearts in the room who need to be challenged. Actually, we have have been holding Jesus at arm's length and not joining him on the road. And Father, you know the hearts in the room where people don't yet know you and just looking in and we pray you would draw them to the Lord Jesus. Peace for all of us. Help us to appreciate what a wonderful King and Saviour he is. 
and so to want nothing more than to follow close to him. And we pray that would mean we'd be a church family where the good news of Jesus rings out from us, individually and together. In Jesus' name, amen. Robin.